When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Jim, we spend a lot of time talking about politics on our show. And maybe, just maybe, we, we're doing it too much. Too much. Is that e- even possible? Uh, but <laughs> t- today we're going to talk about whether many of us turn to politics to fill a moral vacuum in our lives. I think for a lot of people, political identity is a kind of a response to a sense of isolation or, or loneliness. The question we're going to examine today is whether our political orientation sometimes isolate us from other people? And do we need to look at ourselves first before reaching out and seeking deeper, more generous connections with other people? This is our latest episode on polarization, the soul of civility, Alexandra Hudson. It's a timeless problem. It's an intractable problem. That there's no, you know, public policy solutions or simple cures. That it's, it requires constant vigilance on behalf of each of us. That's humbling. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? It's easy to look at the divided state of the world and blame our leaders, the media, our our education system, all of whom I, I think share some culpability. But it's not just about them. The argument we hear today focuses on us. That doesn't mean embracing moderation or politeness. Disagreements and protests are also a vital part of democracy. But uh, how do we go about conducting ourselves? First, we need to show respect for ourselves. Alexandra, or Lexi Hudson's new book, The Soul of Civility, reminds us that today's America is very far from being the first society to, to really struggle and grapple with what seemed to be intractable division and even anger. What I love about the book, and like some others that we've dealt with on How Do We Fix It, is she digs back into the history and the literature of thinking on these issues. And one thinker she cites who is new to me is Tahotep. He wrote over 4,000 years ago and was an advisor to the pharaoh. And he compiled a list of maxims for living well. Among them, uh, Tehotep warned that, quote, if you meet a disputant in the heat of action, pay no attention to his evil speech. Your self-control will be a match for his evil utterances. That's probably good advice for all of us when we're, especially when we're engaged in, you know, those heated social media debates. 
Now, Richard, I wasn't able to join you for this interview. I'm really sorry I missed it, but you did a, an admirable job with Lexi Hudson. So let's go to that interview, which you were recently recorded in New York City. What's the difference between good manners, being polite, and civility? I think a lot of people don't necessarily make that distinction. It's a great point. I think I, I agree with you, which is part of the reason I wrote this book. I learned about this difference firsthand when I worked in federal government. I, on one hand, saw these people who had sharp elbows, who were willing to step on anyone to get ahead and get what they wanted, proximity to power, the promotion, whatever it was, on one hand. On the other hand, there were people who at first I thought were my people. I was raised in this home that cared about propriety, other-orientedness, social norms, um, social graces, and I, I saw this other contingent, people who were polished and suave and poised. But I realized this contingent would flatter me one moment and stab me in the back the next. And at first I thought these were two opposites, the extreme aggression and extreme politeness. But then I realized they're actually two sides of the same coin. Both instrumentalize others. Both see other human beings as means to their selfish ends. One sees them as worth stepping on to get ahead. The other is worth manipulating to get ahead, get at whatever they want. And and so that helped clarify for me this essential distinction between civility and politeness. I realized that you could you could have the form that the pleasantries that that made one seem good, but not actually use that for 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 good ends. You were working for um, Betsy DeVos. I was uh, who, for liberals, was very uh, controversial, and for conservatives, kind of a champion. The people you're referring to were they both liberals and conservatives? That's right. The they were. They yeah. were. It wasn't just one contingent. It was stakeholders I worked with, my career staff I worked with, my own political team, and this was just an ethos. This, this the hostility, the extreme politeness. I saw those divergent contingents within each one of those subcultures, and so it wasn't just one aspect of, of government at all. We live in very divided times. Why is civility not just merely pleasant, but but vital and needed? We're in this moment where we have many important conversations we need to have. You and I, Richard, are part of this this movement of people that want to depolarize our country, want to heal these divides. We're we're not the first people to be concerned about about this issue. There's a long lineage of uh, a long tradition in our country of of thoughtful people wanting to get us to talk nicely together. What I've discovered is that that's just you know not enough. It's not enough just to focus on the superficial forms and tones and how we're talking. What we need, what we need, is a fundamental cultivation and reorientation of the heart. We need to cultivate true civility, a basic respect for our fellow citizens and fellow human beings. So that's the difference between civility and politeness. Politeness is external. It's manners. It's etiquette. It's behavior. It's surface. It's surface level. The um, civility is internal. It's a disposition of the heart. It's a way of seeing others as our fellow citizens, our fellow human beings who are our moral equals, even when we deeply disagree. And that crucially, Richard, sometimes actually respecting someone, actually being civil, requires being impolite. 
It requires telling a hard truth, engaging in robust debate. It requires respecting ourselves enough and others to say there's a real difference here. And we're not just going to pretend that difference doesn't exist. And we're not just going to tone police and sweep the difference under the rug and or kick or kick the difference down the road for another day. You know, we're going to grapple with this. Yeah, that's what we do on our podcast. My, my <laughs> co-host who's, who's usually with me, uh, Jim, is more conservative than I am politically. And we go at it. But we're good friends. This is this is key. I'm sure your relationship embodies this, that sometimes civility demands action. So it says, you know, I respect you enough. I respect myself enough to bring forth an uncomfortable conversation or topic that we need to hash out. But it also takes certain conduct off the table, like no ad hominem attack, no violence. It says, you know, it both demands action, but takes some things off the table, offers these essential parameters to guide our social discourse to help it be robust, but also promoting peace and prosperity and cooperation, which is what the joint project of of society, of, of democracy promises us. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned personal relationships. Um, the uh, One of our previous guests on How Do We Fix It, uh, Peter Coleman of Columbia University, who runs, I think it's called the Conflict Lab, and he's studying conflict and often studying the differences between good conflict, constructive conflict, and, and uh, destructive or bad conflict, talks about how in marriages and in close relationships that one of the definitions of a relationship that's in deep trouble is when there's contempt. And I I guess that also applies politically, that if you have contempt for others um, that you disagree with, then that is a, 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 a warning sign that something's wrong. It's so interesting. That's a great, it's a great point. But it's interesting the moment we live in now, conflict is actually a way of respecting others and ourselves. And it can be a way to help a relationship grow. Getting through conflict together well is a way to that we can thrive and flourish. And I think people often miss that. We, we fear conflict. We fear that it's going to spell the end of a relationship or, or something like that. But, but civility again, offers us those parameters, that actual respect, opposite of contempt, but actually loving and respecting others. I mean, we can be passionate in how we have conversations, but never, you know, accusing someone, bringing up uh, a litany of past grievances, for example, never never having violence. But at, but at the same time, it takes certain things off the table. It also demands that that mutual respect that, that demands having those conversations. And we can thrive through it. Our relationships can grow and be strengthened by conflict. I think people miss that. You've said that one model for what you're talking about is a protest movement, the civil rights movement led by Dr. Martin Luther King, clearly a very controversial figure in his time. But he had very important things to say about civility and and protest. He's a great example of someone um, who sought to cultivate the heart of civility, the soul of civility in his own life and in his movement. So, for example, before he would let anyone be part of his peaceful, nonviolent resistance, he would have them undergo this process of purification. And during this process of purification, uh, the people who would be part of his movement had to cultivate respect and love for the people whom 
they were protesting first. The white supremacists, the bigots, they had to first love them before they protested them. And that it was that love and respect for the protest for the people whom they were protesting that compelled them to protest. Well, for the people who are sometimes beating them Absolutely. or hosing them. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's a very diff- difficult thing to do. It's no, it feels like an impossible thing to do, especially it feels so foreign and alien to us today when the defining ethos of our rhetoric on both sides of the spectrum seems to be you know, it, the, all bets are off. The stakes are too high to be decent and kind, um, to love or respect. The other side is too bad, you know, too evil to love and respect, and that we need to be willing to do anything in order to win. And what Dr. King recognized was, and we get this from his letter from Birmingham jail, was that when we have that sort of high stakes mentality where we're willing to do anything to, to, to the other side in order to win, that that doesn't just hurt and corrode the dignity and personhood of the other, that it hurts us too. This is the exact argument he made about segregation. He says segregation is mutually harmful for both the segregated and the segregator. Incivility, violence, you know, ad hominem attack, cruelty towards our fellow human beings is mutually harmful. But on the flip side, grace, kindness, acts of civility and charity to our fellow human beings, that is mutually ennobling. It affirms and cultivates the humanity of others and also makes us more human and more humane as well. You have said that pushing back against polarization, the need to flourish across division is is the most important project of our moment. But why do you feel that way? I experienced it firsthand, that the, the profound division and, and dehumanization and that defines our, our body politic right now, living and working in government and, and, and in Washington 2017, 2018. And I felt like I wasn't being part of the solution in government. And I wanted I wanted to be. What I what I felt like we needed was a fundamental reorientation of our of our values and how we approach public life and, and life with others. I left government very discouraged, very despondent, and zoomed out and thought, what does it mean to be a human being? And what is the bare minimum of respect that we are owed and owe to others by virtue of our common dignity, our shared humanity? And so after I left government, I revis- I revisited Texts that had nourished and formed me growing up from Hebrew Bible, Christian, New Testament, to Plato, Aristotle, Dostoevsky, Pascal, and these are thinkers that come up that were big thinkers that asked big questions about the stuff of the good life and the stuff of human flourishing. Thoughtful people have been grappling with this question for for a very long time. And why I think it's important is because it's really easy to look around us today and blame new technologies or blame one specific leader, you know, that this person is the cause, right? But with the problem with that, if we misidentify the cause, we're still left with the problem. We're not going to sufficiently, if we misdiagnose, we're not going to sufficiently treat. It's a timeless problem. It's an intractable problem. That there's no, you know, public policy solutions or simple cures. That it's, it requires constant vigilance on behalf of each of us. That's humbling. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Lexi Hudson speaking about the soul of civility. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. How Do We Fix It? is a member of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy reform and civil engagement, among other things. Find out more and, and listen to the shows at democracygroup.org. And speaking of the Democracy Group, Richard, I think uh, listeners would be interested to know, if they don't already, that you co-host a podcast there with Ashley milne Tight, and it's called Let's Find Common Ground. The two most recent episodes are about political polarization. One is with researcher Rachel Kleinfeld and the other with Rory Stewart, former British government minister, author, and podcaster. Okay, now back to our interview with Lexi Hudson. She talks a bit now about how society has changed in recent decades, an echo perhaps of Robert Putman's famous book, Bowling Alone, which spoke of how membership in all kinds of civic and religious groups has fallen and as a result, we're more alone and isolated. As these traditional touchstones of meaning, family, friendship, church, civil society have been on the decline in recent decades, those, ha- those are how people have traditionally derived their identity and meaning in life. But as those have declined, people have misplaced their identity and found their meaning in public life, in political life, in public issues, which is why people are unable, often unable, to have rational, calm conversation across difference because it's like they feel their very life and livelihood is at stake. It feels like an existential threat to, to encounter someone of a who has a different view than theirs. And that's a problem for a democracy, problem for, for our public life. So because we've allowed politics to become all-encompassing, everything has a a political dimension now, where we send our kids to school, where we grocery shop, what what shoes we buy, what newspaper we read, who we read, that everything has a political valence, a dimension to it now. And we've allowed politics to become too much part of our lives. And, and there is such thing. Democracy is a good thing. P- politics is, as Clausewitz said, is war by other means. If we're doing politics well, we're not at war, right? Like that's a good thing. But there is such thing as too much of a good thing. We're overdoing politics and democracy, and we're undermining our democratic institutions. We're undermining our peaceful democratic processes. It's not enough just to say politics matter less to us. We need to bring things into our lives that fill us up, that displace our love of politics. And I talk about friendship across difference. I talk about um, beauty, encountering the sublime and the transcendent as a way to fill us up and displace our sense of selves and our pettiness to help us do life better. 
And I talk about curiosity, intellectual curiosity, which is good for its own sake, but also curiosity breeds curiosity. And the more that we're curious about one thing, the more that we'll be curious about other people and things in our lives as well, which is, I think, an essential antidote to our our mood of, of, of moral certainty, where everyone feels like they have all the answers. <laughs> yeah. Why is curiosity so important? It helps us recognize that we we don't have all the answers and that people are complex. People come to their beliefs about the world around them for many different reasons. And that today it's too often the case that we learn one aspect of who a person is, their views on one issue, who they voted for. We use that as shorthand to come to conclusions about the entirety of who they are. And we don't, we, we lose the need to be curious about them. You're not saying ignore the importance of political issues or problems in our time, but that when it comes to our identity and how we think of ourselves, our political identity shouldn't be necessarily front and center or the be-all and end-all of how we see ourselves. That's exactly right. We need to be able to step back and nourish our souls from other other sources. And if we're only doing the controversial, having the hard conversations all day, every day, it's exhausting. But if we're only talking about those things, only focusing on the points of difference, the things that divide us, and we're not... We're not having opportunities to see what we have in, in common as human beings, as fellow citizens. We're not going to do democracy and our democratic process justice. Do you see the embrace of civility in our daily lives as one way out of our polarization crisis? I do, because human life is far too complex to be reduced to a static set of rules. What we need is the disposition of civility that instead gives us the outlook, the general disposition towards others that helps us know when we should break rules for the sake of loving, of respecting our fellow citizens and our fellow human beings. I'll end with a a story that I love that illustrates this so well. When Queen Victoria was hosting the Queen of Persia to a state dinner at Buckingham Palace, the Queen of Persia sat down to dinner and did the unthinkable. She took the bowl in front of her and tipped it to her lips to drink it. That scandalized the entire room in this very, in Victorian England that had all these arcane etiquette rules. And the room went silent, not knowing what Queen Victoria was going to do. She took the bowl and tipped it to her lips and sipped it, too. She broke this very obvious rule of propriety and manners and etiquette. Why? For the sake of putting her guest at ease. For the sake of making her guest feel welcome and not making her feel like the outsider. And it's cultivating that, that heart, that attitude, that disposition towards others, the disposition of civility that respects others, sees them as our fellow human beings, deserving of respect. So I do have hope for reclaiming the uh, high view of humanity, the gift of being human in both ourselves and others. I do think that is an essential part of helping us out of this this, this uh, divided state that we are in. Lexi Hudson, thank you. Thanks, Richard, for having me. Lexi Hudson, author of The Soul of Civility. Next, a recommendation and then our conversation. We recommend books, movies, TV shows, podcasts, and various and sundry other forms of media. Richard, what do you have for us today? It's a book. 
The Spinning Heart by Irish writer Donald Ryan. It's short, but it's powerful. A novel set in a small town in Ireland in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, the, actually the financial collapse, the town was flush with cash during the housing boom. You could have said that about many communities in America as well. Lots of new homes being built, plenty of work for uh, laborers and construction workers, and then uh, the banking collapse. And the developer, the local developer in this book, skips town. And we read about what happens from the point of view of various characters, each one who has been wounded in some way by the economy, by the sudden collapse of work, also by their their families, their parents, their lovers. And it's very poignant and in places very funny. Um, and it's a it's a really good read. The Spinning Heart by by Donald Ryan. You know, it sounds a little bit like the work of Richard Russo, who's in the news lately. The the author of the Nobody's Fool series of novels, which I, I like a lot, which which depict life in kind of a, a backwater uh, New York State uh, community that's fallen on on kind of hard times as the as the economic tide has gone out and and this is a there's so there's so much fiction about the lives of you know the kinds of people who go to graduate programs in fiction writing that <laughs> it's it's nice to see people focus uh, on another segment of society Well, Jim, our interview with with Lexi Hudson, I asked the question, so maybe maybe you should give some of the answers here. Yeah, well, first of all, you know, uh, good job. You you soldiered on. And as always, I figured I'd listen to it and think like, huh, this works pretty well when I'm not even there. So... Well, the pace is so brisk. I don't know. You, you, you there's, provide a certain there, depth, there are, gravitas that I don't have. There are fewer long digressions. Well, first of all, the the, the underlying instinct, the the, the sentiment, the, the 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 mission is, is that she advocates. It's not an easy one, and it's it's one we've discussed with other other thinkers on the show. I particularly Chloe Valdery, who urges people to to try to understand the roots of how your ideological opponents might have, have come to their views. And I have to say that all of this seems especially hard right now. I, like so many people uh, around the world in the intellectual classes, I think, ha- have been shocked in recent weeks by the outpouring of, you have to say, delight over the massacre in Israel uh, by Hamas uh, on college campuses, college professors saying that they were exhilarated by the bloodshed and pro-Hamas protests in in, uh, in cities all across the, the Western world. So it, this is a time when understanding one's ideological opponents is, I think, especially hard, especially when they have no desire to understand me or my family or anyone who they have designated as being part of some kind of oppressor class. A designation, I think, is rooted in falsehoods, but but is a, a powerful moral way to organize the universe. So we've really got our work cut out for us on this. This is not just a matter of saying, oh, you voted for Biden, I voted for Trump. This goes a lot deeper. 
It, it does. So I, I think many of us on the left have been shocked for years on the decline of, of political behavior in our, in our public sphere. But what this shows is that it's it's not just one side. It's right across our political uh, theater, whether it's the appalling uh, response to what's happened with, with Hamas or whether it's earlier events. Um, it's, it's just a, a deep, deep problem that we need to address. Yeah. Killing 1,400 people and having the world's intelligentsia support that is different from the, the ridiculous things that happened on January 6th. Uh, I, I, I do think that as we search for you know, reaching <laughs> across uh, divides, we also have to identify evil when we see it. And and I'm I, I guess I'm not I'm in these weeks since October seventh, I, I don't find myself in a charitable mood towards people who want a lot of people that I love dead. I agree. Yeah, I'm. I feel very much the same way. Uh, support for terrorists who murder civilians. That's despicable and and the complete opposite from what Lexi Hudson spoke about in our interview. But it's not fair to our our guest to kind of hijack the conversation into just simply into into current events. So what I was struck by um, in the interview and in the book was, how deep this thinking goes. You know, we think of sort of liberalism and tolerance as being modern ideals, and they are to a large extent in, in the sense of being widely accepted, at least in, maybe until recently. Uh, but she shows how some of these goals reach back into ancient times, even before. You know, I would anchor it in the, in the ancient Greeks, but as she shows it goes back even farther than that. I liked her distinction especially uh, between politeness and civility, that, that politeness can often be a mask for, for terrible behavior, stabbing people in the back or totally uh, disregarding the, the feelings or the views of others. So I'm very much in her court when she calls for, for a generosity of spirit and also mentions uh, Martin Luther King, um, who told his supporters that, that racist laws give segregators a false sense of superiority and and the segregated a false sense of inferiority and that something like that hurts both sides both peoples yeah i like that uh that formulation she has where she says that politeness is outward focus it's a matter of the appearances uh and not unimportant uh but uh, but civility is inward focused it's How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Veranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. We're the podcast company that makes podcasting for nonprofits. And we especially focus on uh, the uh, bridging space, uh, the bridging, bridging divides in America. Uh, if you want to find out more, then uh, go to our website, DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? 
the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.